Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. All right, if you guys could stand, I'm going to read the passage for today. We're continuing in a series in Romans, in the middle of Romans chapter 4. This is Romans chapter 4 verses 9 through 12. And so I'm going to read this, then I'm going to say, um, this is the word of the Lord, and you're going to say, thanks be to God, just as a way of recognizing the value of God's words and our gratitude for them. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys can have a seat. So we're in this series in Romans. A couple weeks ago, I feel like we came upon a passage that was a real hinge in the book of Romans, um, and the, the guts of that were, the, were these words, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. And so um, he, he goes through these, the ideas of justification, propitiation, and redemption, which are the big church words, but they make perfect sense in this passage that God has... Though we've fallen short of the glory of God, he's made us right um, with him that they're in, to the point that there's no basis on which to bring an accusation against us. That's how complete the work of Jesus on our behalf is. He satisfied God's anger with our sins, and, um, and that can sound harsh, but we just know that. If you forgive somebody or somebody forgives you, the person that gets forgiven has the burden taken off, but the, the forgiver still has to deal with the burden and the pain, and that's God, and that gets, but that gets resolved completely in the work of Christ on our behalf, and then he's redeemed us from our sin. The sin our sin has no power over us anymore, which doesn't make sense because we still sin, but he's going to deal with that as we keep going um, through Romans. And so that passage was just this huge bomb that he dropped, and then he's dealing, he starts dealing with what he knows the questions are going to be and the ramifications of it. Last week, it was, where is our boasting? And so how do we relate with each other now? And he basically said, hey, you don't have to compare yourself with everybody around you anymore. You don't have to live your life with a horizontal comparison because you're getting everything that you need vertically from the Lord, and so you're free from the desire to boast. And then this is where he goes next. And so I'm backing up to Romans chapter 3 and the the questions that he's asking. He says, is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So this, is, this passage, like, I feel like, just took, takes a bit to get into to understand because I, I really don't think we can understand the dynamic between in that church in Rome where they've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. So Jewish people are Jewish people. Gentile people are the rest of us. Anybody that's not Jewish would be considered a Gentile, and that's how the world was divided up in the Jewish mind. And circumcised people, when he talks about circumcised people, that's Jewish people because that's the sign of the covenant that the Jewish people had with the Lord was that they would circumcise the boys on the eighth day. And Gentile 
people didn't, didn't need to do that. And that day, that's what it meant, you know. And so, again, that's just hard for us to get into. There was a real racism, if you were a Jewish person, towards anybody that wasn't a Jewish person, towards Gentile people. And so I remember studying this years ago, and they had sayings like, it'd be better not to, to help. It may have just been like the Samaritan, which is a certain type of Gentile, Samaritan woman in childbirth. It'd be better not to help her in childbirth so we don't bring another one of them into the world. Like, that's racism, right? And, um, and that, like, they wouldn't use cooking utensils or, like, silverware which, that had been used by Gentiles. They wouldn't use it because it had been contaminated. Which, like, we know that type of racism from, like, water fountains. And, I mean, just... just um, Yesterday, they put up a marker over at uh, the village district about the Woolworths and the sit-in that was there. I mean, it's, we know that type of racism, and that's the type of racism they're dealing with. And they've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians right there in their church um, that they're dealing with. And the, the heart of it for a Jewish person was, in the Old Testament law, they had all these purity laws. And so that's how they saw the world, is like it's clean or unclean. And so there's certain things they could eat that kept you clean, but then if you ate the wrong things, you were unclean. And then they had ceremonial washings that kept you clean, and they had sacrifices that would, would make you clean again. And so for a Jewish mind, like their goal was to remain clean because this is what God had said, and the Gentiles don't have any of those laws. So in a Jewish mind, they are unclean. And in that same Old Testament law, there are provisions for Gentiles to become Jewish people, like for immigrants to gain citizenship and to, to, like, become a part of that. But it's like Israel over a thousand years just forgot about some things that God had said early. And so I think what happened to Israel is, is one, like, they're this tiny nation, and they're taking it on the chin from the Gentile nations all around them for a thousand years. Like, they're at war with everybody, just fighting to survive. And so it's, it's super easy to get an us-versus-them mentality, you know, um, and they had developed that. And I think what happened, like that's externally, internally, they realized they weren't real good at keeping these purity laws. Like they couldn't stay clean themselves. And what happens when you have a hard time following the rules is I feel like two things. Either you, you develop some humility of like, God, I can't follow these rules. What should I do now? Or like you, you kind of develop a defensiveness which says, well, I can't follow all the rules, but I follow them better than you do. So like God must like me more. And that's what they had done, um, the nation of Israel. And so they end up in this place where it's a super us versus them mentality. And so this, the question that Paul is asking, is God a God of the Jews only or a God of the Gentiles too? The, the heart of that question is a question about God's heart. You get that? Like the heart of that question, the guts of that question are a question about the heart of God and how big God's heart is. Is he our God? Or is he their God? Or is he both of our gods? Um, what does it mean that, that we, the Jews, for them, are, are God's chosen people? Does God like us better than he likes them? Is he for us in a different way than he is for them? Because that's their, that's their mindset. You know, they are the ones that were God's chosen people. He told Abraham that he would bless his nation, which is Israel, he rescued the Israelites from the Egyptians. They had received the law directly from God. They alone were the nation that tried to follow that law. They alone had a temple in Jerusalem where God himself 
showed up once a year, you know, in the Day of Atonement. They were the city set on a hill and a light to the nations. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And so it's natural for them to think we've got this special relationship with God. We are his favorite. Um, and natural for the non-Jewish people in that church in Rome to think you have no idea how annoying you are, you know? Uh, and just for there to be this huge divide, and Paul is saying the gospel changes that um, completely. And so again, I think this is just a hard passage for us to get into, um, because in our head, like, this is the second week in a row, I'm got Bible songs in my mind that I didn't grow up with them because I didn't really grow up in church that sang songs like this, but like, um, Jesus loves little children, all the children of the world. What comes next? They're precious in the sight, right? So Jesus is everybody's God, not just our God. Like, we get that. Um, We don't live in the polytheistic world that they lived in where they could walk down the street and see statues that everybody worships and like there's all sorts of gods that are who's who who is who's God. Like we just come from a more monotheistic place. But but I think we can probably get this us versus them thing. We're pretty good at the us versus them thing right now, aren't we? And so I think I'm going to make some comparisons that are not like, I'm going to try and connect some dots. They don't connect as well as I want them to, but I think get us in the ballpark of what's going on in this church. So, November 8th, 2016. This is a where were you thing. You know what November 8th, 2016 was? Nobody? Just think, people. Election night. Election night. Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump. Oh, gosh. Uh, That day... The pastor's cohort that John and I are a part of, that I talk about a bit, we had a, that was a Tuesday, we met that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in Philadelphia, and I drove to that one. So I woke up early, drove through Washington, D.C., like early, and got to Philadelphia on election day, and I geek out on this stuff, like the history of it, the politics, the, just the ceremony. So driving through D.C. and seeing the Capitol building and the Washington Monument on this day that you knew that was going to be so significant. And then being in Philadelphia, blocks from Independence Hall, like just the, you know, and I remember touring Independence Hall a few years ago and they talked about, they showed us this room and they're like, this is the room where George Washington transferred power after his two terms as president to John Adams. It was John Adams, right? I'm like, I hope I have that right. None of you know either. Okay, so John Adams. And at that time, thinking, ah, big deal. But then the more I think about it, like, at least half the people in the world don't have a transfer of power like that. You know, you think about all the nations that are run by dictators. And going down to Nicaragua, a whole bunch of, where they're stuck with Daniel Ortega, and they have been for, like, 20 years, and they're going to be until he and his crazy wife die. Because they they have elections, but they're 100% rigged, and everybody knows it. You know, and so I love an inauguration where you've got two people that probably hate each other standing next to each other, transferring power only because there's a bunch of guys with guns around. Like, I love it, you know, that this is, we have the formality of it. And so we go through all that stuff and it's election night. And that night, as it became clear, we've got, there are five, John wasn't at that one. There's five of us there and um, five pastors. As it became clear that, that Trump was going to beat Hillary, two guys Two of us were just, like, they were crushed, and they just went to bed early because they were, it was crushing them. 
that Hillary was going to lose and Trump was going to win. One of them, an African-American pastor from Charlotte, another one, Presbyterian guy from Atlanta. And one guy didn't care. And then two of us, like I did not, this is more than I really want to say, but just for clarity's sake, I didn't want either one of those to win. I threw my vote away for Marco Rubio because I thought he would have been a great candidate until Trump just trashed him in that debate. But he, um, but I didn't want either one of them to win, but I wanted Hillary to win less than I wanted Trump to win. Does that make sense? And, and that night was entertaining because the, most of the news media that are unbiased were so crushed by the results, like it was just entertaining, you know? So two of us stayed up to watch it, a little kind of excited about it, and two of us were crushed about those results. Our cohort, we talk about everything we've never talked that night out. Like, five guys, God-fearing, our convictions come from Scripture, pastors, great friends, best of friends. And two of us, like four of us, ended up with just completely different convictions coming from the same place, right? Like, is God a God of the Democrats only, or is he a God of Republicans also? And half of you are like, no, you got that the other way around. Uh, <laughs> like, could God be for them in the way that God is for us? Can you do that? You know, and like, I think you can get priorities. You can, you can think God's priorities are on one side or the other, like about, you know, you could, the, the government should organize around poverty or the marginalized or immigration or whatever. You can make a biblical case for some of that. Or you could also think that God is, prioritizes the unborn and, and religious liberty and you're invested in it. And you just have such a hard time thinking, how could people think different than me on that? You know? And I think that's, that's getting us closer to what's going on in this church in Rome. Um, America was founded on people that held to Judeo-Christian principles I don't think American was a, a Christian nation. I don't think we have anything near the status of Israel and the Bible, any of that. Is God for America more than he's for a Middle Eastern nation run by Sharia law? Does he love America more than France? You know, like, does, does God, um, is he partial? Um, I think you could go back not too long and ask, is God a God of men only or women too? I was reading this week, you know when Yale started admitting women? Any guesses? Did you say the 1590s? <laughs> I'm just kidding. I know you didn't say that. 1969. Um, I, you ladies take it on the chin more than we men understand. You know, uh, is God a God of white people only, or is he a God of brown and black people too? Until 160 years ago, black people were property, and white Christians used the Bible to justify that position. And until 55 years ago, this was the Jim Crow South, and, and black people were having to have sit-ins at a Woolworths, you know, soda counter or whatever, just to... And so is God on someone's side more than another person's side? I've used this a couple times in the, in the past several years that if you, if you look at Raleigh, if you, once you've been in Raleigh for a little while, you understand that the poorest part of Raleigh is where? It's Southeast Raleigh. And what color are the majority of people in Southeast Raleigh? Yeah, it's majority 
African-American, and, and it's the poorest part of town. Northwest Raleigh is the most wealthy part of town. It is predominantly white. A couple years ago, I thought, man, to answer the question, why is that the case, you have a limited set of answers. And one of them is that black people can't get it together in one way or another, that there's some inferiority that they cannot get it together, which I don't think anyone is going to say is the right answer, or something happened along the way that has been made right in part, but has not been made right in full to where this dynamic still plays itself out 160 years after the Civil War and 55 years after the Civil Rights Movement. Now, my, taking that a little bit further, I think when God looks at Raleigh, that dynamic probably breaks God's heart. Like, God is probably very burdened for that dynamic more than mine is and more than most of yours are. And, like, that's the type of thing where I think is God... Do we, impl- do we have some implicit thought that God is for us in a way that he's not for them? I think that's the level at which this passage is dealing with things. Is God a God of the Jews only? Is he not a God of the Gentiles also? Yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And so he's dealing with some implicit bias that the Jewish people in particular have a hard time See, and the heart of the question is a, is a question about God's heart. And then I thought throughout the Bible, I feel like over and over and over again throughout the Bible, particularly in the Gospels, the authors of the Bible are trying to stretch our understanding of how big God's heart is. Now, Paul, his response to this, and so this question is in chapter 3. At the end of chapter 3, he asks three questions in this one paragraph And then he spends chapter 4 answering those questions. And so the passage that had you stand while I read it is an answer to that question. He says this, Is the blessing then only for the circumcised, the Jewish people, or also for the uncircumcised, the Gentile people? For we say that faith was counted to Abram as righteousness. This gets into the passage from last week that, um, where his point last week was that Abraham was not justified by his works, but by his faith. And so before he had... Um, done anything he believed and God credited to him as righteousness and so his faith was counted to him as righteousness how then was it counted to him was it before or after he had been circumcised and so um, so circumcision is the sign of the covenant between God and the Jewish people it is like maybe the biggest sign for them and it's a sign of like covenant faithfulness and if you break this covenant you'll be cut off there's obviously fertility attached to it and you as a people will be cut off there's ceremonial things about the eighth day is when when they circle it's a big deal for jewish people this is what they have circumcision and so he's like was abraham made righteous before he was circumcised or after he was circumcised which is basically saying was he made was he made righteous was he justified before he was a jewish person or after he became a technically a jewish person which is a pretty good question and i think um and so he gives the answer. He says, it was not after, but before he was circumcised, he received the sign of circumcision as the seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. And so he's telling them he got right with God while he was still a Gentile and before he became a Jewish person. Now, if you were a Jewish person thinking that God likes you more than the Gentile people, like that's putting a pin in your balloon, Right. Like, that's kind of taking the rug out from under you in your argument. And I imagine they're like, 
oh, and Paul's a Jewish person. Oh, I never really thought about it that way before. (laughs) I guess he was. And then Paul goes on and says, the purpose of that was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Uh, And to make him the father of the circumcised who were not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was uncircumcised. He's telling the Jews, Abraham wasn't just your father. He is the father of all who believe in the same promise that he believed in that was fulfilled in Jesus. And so he is stretching their understanding of God's heart. And I'm just going to run through a handful of passages in the Bible where he does this. So starting with the promise to Abraham. Genesis chapter 12, the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, your father's house, the land that I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I'll curse. That sounds like an us versus them thing. Like, I'm with you and I'm against whoever them are. But, he says, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And this is what I think they missed. I remember someone telling me this. It's probably, I mean, I was already in ministry probably about 20 years ago that Abraham was blessed to be a blessing, and we are blessed to be a blessing. And it's like the Jewish people completely lost sight of the fact that the blessing was to flow through them to all of the nations of the world. There wasn't an us versus them. It was just God wanting to bless the world but choosing to do that through the people of Israel. And his heart was bigger than they had they'd forgotten how big his heart was. It's a passage in Exodus. Where, um, where Moses has taken the Israelites through the Red Sea. They're out in the desert. It's before they get to the promised land. And um, man, the Israelites were frustrating because they wanted to go back to Egypt right away. Moses is frustrated. God is frustrated. And Moses says, hey, show me your glory. And, um, and God says, I can't do that or I have to kill you. But I'll, and he puts him in the cleft of the rock and he passes before him. And he, and he wants to know who God is. And this is God's self-description. And so we think of God in the Old Testament as like kind of cranky, you know? This is the, the Noah thing and the 10 plagues and like he kills some of these people in the desert. Like he's just kind of irritated. Here's how God sees himself. The Lord passed before Moses and said, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, hesed love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Like, we think God has a quick trigger finger, literally, in the Old Testament. And he's like, you have no idea how patient I am being with you guys. My heart is so much bigger than you can grasp. And he goes on and says, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, the third and fourth generation. So he's a God, as, as Jesus is described, full of grace and full of truth. He is abounding in steadfast, committed patient love but a God who is just and the more we come to understand love the more you understand justice is necessary for love to be um, true but he stretches our understanding of how big his heart is Uh, Deuteronomy there's a passage in Deuteronomy where he says to the Israelites you are a people holy to the Lord your God the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth you are the chosen people, which is why we think God is, as a Jew, more for us than for them. But then he goes on to talk about why he chose them. 
Because you think he chose them because they were special and they were the better people than everybody else. And he says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, but because you were the fewest of all the peoples. It's because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you. He loves you because he loves you because he loves you. It's not because of who you are, it's because of who he is. And in the Israelites' case, they weren't the greatest of all the nations, they were the least of all the nations. If he wanted the greatest of all the nations, he would have gone to Egypt and said, you're my people. He picked the least, maybe in some ways the hardest to love, so that he could show the greatness, his power, and his glory. Um, And so he works against this narrative of like, my heart is just for you. No, my heart is for, uh, for, for everybody. Um, throughout, the, throughout the Gospels, so just thinking about some stories of Jesus and how the, his disciples and Jewish people would have read these stories and received them. In John chapter 4, one of the first, just one of the, you know, early in John, one of the first stories, he, um, it's the story of the woman at the well. So they're going from the northern part of Israel to the southern part. They have to pass through Samaria. Um, Gentiles have a, a, a higher level of hate from Jewish people, or sorry, Samaritans have a higher level of hate because Samaritans were like the ultimate unclean people. When, when the northern kingdom of Israel got taken captive by Assyria, Assyria like intermixed the races, and so their Samaritans are like a mixed race, and Jewish people hated them. So they're going through Samaria, and they're Jewish, and that's a dicey thing, Jesus and his disciples and they get towards this town, and Jesus sends his disciples into town to get some food, and he just stays outside of town, and there's a well, and a woman comes to the well at noon, and she's at the well at noon because she is a woman of, of ill repute in their, in their culture. Um, he later says she's been married five times, and she's living with a guy. She's in sexual sin, and, she, and so she's at the well alone to avoid people, and Jesus had sent his disciples in, and Jesus starts having a conversation with her. Well, he shouldn't have been talking to a woman. He shouldn't have been talking to a Samaritan, and he shouldn't have been talking to a Samaritan woman who'd been married five times and was living with a guy, was in sexual sin, but he is. And he he asked her for water, and then he eventually tells her, like, hey, the water that you get from this well is never going to satisfy you, but I'm the Messiah that the Jews and Samaritans have been waiting for, and the water that I give you, you will never thirst again if you take this water. He invites her in to the gospel, and she takes it. And his disciples come back from town and are like, what? What are you doing? Like, you can't talk to her. And he's stretching their idea. And she's the first evangelist. He goes, he tells her to go back into town, tell people about it. He's stretching their idea of how big God's heart is. There's um, another story where there's a centurion, a Roman centurion. And so the Jewish Israel is occupied by Rome. They're, the Romans are Gentiles. And so this is the ultimate symbol of, of like Roman oppression is a soldier, a centurion, a Roman centurion gentile and he comes to jesus and he says hey i have a servant who's sick can you heal him and jesus is like let's do it uh where's your house which he shouldn't be going into a gentile's house that would make him unclean according to jewish laws and the centurion says um he says well hey i'm a i'm a powerful man i've got people under me i tell them what to do they do it and he says, I understand, Jesus, I get it. You are a powerful man in a different realm, and if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He's saying this, 
Gentile that represents the oppression of Israel has more faith than any Jewish person I've seen. You understand how much of a slap in the face that is to Jewish people? And he's stretching their heart. And he ends up saying, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west outside of Israel and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, the Jewish people, will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's constantly pressing this button. The parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, he says, love God, love your neighbor. And there's a leader there that says, well, what, a, what do you mean, love my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? Like, he's basically asking, how small can my heart be? And I still get away with it. And, uh, and Jesus tells the story of a, a guy that's going from Jerusalem and this downhill to Jericho on a road they all knew. And he gets beat up and left for dead. And then the priest and the Levite are coming from Jericho, which is like a vacation place for them. But, and they just pass by him because they're late for church, basically. They got to get to the temple in Jerusalem. And then the Samaritan comes up. And the irony of that story is there is no such thing as a good Samaritan to a Jewish person. And the story ends up being the good Samaritan. And the Samaritan nurses the guy back to health, takes him to an inn, offers to pay for everything. And Jesus says, who proved to be his neighbor? And whoever asked the question said, the one who showed him mercy. And he says, go and do likewise. And he elevates the Samaritan. He stretches our hearts. Um, the prodigal son. Let's have two more. The prodigal son. The younger son takes his inheritance, squanders it on, honestly, hookers and beer, like, you know, and then, he, and then he comes back, comes to his senses and comes back. And the father shames himself and the family by running out and getting on his knees before the son who had shamed the family by taking the inheritance. And the older brother cannot, the religious one, the one who's done everything right, but in his heart is only doing everything right to get what he can from the father. And he doesn't even realize it. It drives him crazy. And so the father throws a party for the younger son, and the older son is out there pouting about it. And the father goes out and talks to him. At the end of the story, it's the religious elder son that is on the outside and the irreligious younger son who's repented that is on the inside. And he's speaking that to the religious Jews and saying, but in your heart, you know, you are a whitewashed tomb full of dead men's bones. He's stretching their idea of the heart of God. Last one, Peter's vision. Jesus has ascended to heaven. The church is getting started. They're going to the Jewish people in Israel, and God um, comes to Peter, and he has a vision. It's like taking a nap, and he has a vision, and a sheet comes down from heaven, and in it are all the unclean animals of the Old Testament, which is, I don't know, other than pigs. I'm not, I don't remember what's unclean, but they're all animals that the Jewish people are not supposed to eat because it makes them unclean. And, and God says to him in this vision, rise and eat. And Peter's like, oh, this is a test. I'm not going to do that. I'm a good Jewish boy. I won't eat that stuff. And he does it three times. And the third time he says, hey, what I've made clean, don't consider unclean. And he is stretching Peter's heart in, a, in just a huge way to say that the gospel is there not just for the Jewish people, but for the Gentile people. And that was a bomb going off. It turned the church upside down. Um, they had so much conflict over this issue. And so throughout the Bible, in so many ways, God is showing us his heart is so much bigger than our hearts or that we can understand. And he's, he's stretching us. And so that's the challenge of this question in this passage. Is is God for the them as much as he is for the us? And to see people not through our eyes, 
but to stretch ourselves to see people through God's eyes and to be open to him, opening our hearts to, to the people that he's put around us. Um, you know, and in that church, uh, again, you've got Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, and there's tension between the two of them. And that, I mean, this has to go a long way towards alleviating that and, and you know, creating a different type of tension within that church, but to resolve the underlying tension. For us, I mean, I think about a few things. I do think, like, it is a call for us um, to ask ourselves if we have implicit biases against other groups of people. Like, it's just so easy for us, and it's a, it's a, it's a um, defense mechanism. It's a way to, to simplify what's going on in a super complex world, to have us versus them um, thinking, you know, and sometimes in really simple ways, but sometimes it gets to be in violent and um, complex ways. And I think he, I think this is part of just him pushing against this. Uh, in a way, I thought about this this week, um, and in a way that I don't, I don't really want to admit. Uh, when I read a story on WRIL, that's my new site, I'll go there, you know, a couple times a day and whatever, just see what's going on. And I read a story about a crime or an accident. If the person, if, if I read the name and it's not a person that's like me, I tend to be less interested in the story. That's just a confession. But if it's like the little girl that died in the Christmas parade and she looks exactly like my little girl looked when she was that age, I'm more interested in the story. If, um, if it's a rash of kids taking their own life at the school and in the residence hall that my son lives in, then I pay more. My heart is bigger for that story. In some ways, that's just like, we got to do that to simplify life enough to live it. In other ways, I'm super convicted by that. That my, I'm not sharing God's heart for things that are going on in the world. So I think it's a challenge to ask yourself what implicit biases you may have against people that are different from you and, um, and to repent of those things. Uh, I also think, I also started thinking like about people that are closer to us, that God's put just in our path, um, family members, neighbors, coworkers, classmates, friends, that God has it. His heart is, beats strong for them. But we're not, but we've lost our concern for what God's doing in their lives. And I think this is hard because there can be some people in your life where, like, you have prayed for them in times past that God would be at work in their hearts, that they would surrender their lives to Jesus. Maybe you've had conversations with them. Um, you know, maybe they've come to a few things, but then you just feel like they're never going to get it. And so you lose that because you got enough going on in your life. Um, and I think this is a call to understand that God's heart beats strong for the people around you. 
I thought about the verse from Peter, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord isn't slow to fulfill his promise as some client slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And so to us, it might seem like God is slow or disinterested um, in people that seem disinterested in him, but he's not. He's patient and he's at work and he has called us. Uh, to go and make disciples of all the nations, um, which is the promise to Abraham was that he would be a blessing ultimately to all the nations, and he's called us into that. And to the extent that, like, we've taken our foot off the gas and how he wants to use us in the lives of the people around him, that is something that we need to talk to him about and to repent of. And and the last one about this passage um, is... I think there's value in it um, in just, in, it's in context of what he's done for you. That you were counted righteous by the work of Christ, not because you were something special, but because he loved you. And he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. And you don't need him to love you more than he loves somebody else. Um, in the way that the Jewish people were doing that in this passage. And you don't need to feel like you're on the outside anymore because there doesn't need to be an outside anymore. And I can imagine to the Gentiles in this church, um, the ones that were being made to feel like they didn't belong, I can imagine what a relief it was uh, for them to hear these words. Um, and I get this sense have this conversation with people not from time to time that all of us feel like we're on the outside more than than he wants us to and what Jesus has done by his work is to let us know on uncertain terms that he's opened the door for us to be on the inside and the inside to be as big as anybody wants it to be because it's dependent upon what he's done for us. We're going to take communion in just a minute. If you're new, the way that we do this is um, this morning, Glenn and Debbie are going to be up here with the elements, um, with some bread and with some, um, some juice. And when Jesus was with his disciples um, at, the, at the Last Supper, he said, do this in remembrance of me. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you and broke the bread and offered to them and said, this is my blood that has been shed for, for us. And so we do this to remember the work of Christ on our behalf that has broken down all of these walls. And so we invite you, if you've received um, what Christ has done for you and who he is, to participate in communion during these next couple of songs. Father, thanks for this passage, and more than that, thanks for the theme throughout the Bible um, that you are constantly pushing us to share your heart for the world around us, Lord, to the extent that we have made it us for the, versus them in ways that you don't, that you don't want us to, Lord, that is not helpful. I pray that you would search our hearts. I pray that you would convict us, Lord. Um, I pray that you would help us to understand the love that you have for us greater and the love that you have for us would help us to understand the love that you have for others and to share that love for the people around us. 
And I pray, Lord, in a culture that just seems increasingly to be fraying at the seams, Lord, and coming apart, that you would be able to use your church um, to, bring your, to, bring your, to bring people together in places that matter. And Lord, we love you and pray this in Jesus' name.